1: Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 428. You're listening to. My guest today is mixer Jay Clark, based out of Los Angeles. Jay's been at it from both sides of the glass, from touring and playing with bands and diving into the world of recording and mixing, and specifically Atmos and Sony 360, which we're going to talk about, of course. And I'm really looking forward to having him on the show. And also, he's another person who's part of Infrasonic. So I think I've almost covered everybody there. Jay Clark, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. (music) Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about keeping your cool. Recently, we had an incident at my house where my neighbor was doing some digging with a bobcat type vehicle, something that you could dig earth with. And he had a crew of guys that were you know, cleaning out some dirt and inadvertently cut our sewer lateral. That's the pipe that carries all the poo and pee out of our house into the city sewer. Because it was traveling in a certain path, we assumed it wasn't us, but I'll spare you the details, but long story short, we discovered that it was us and we had an emergency on our hands. It really involved a lot of different people from the city, from the county, and a set of plumbers, the homeowner next door, and of course, all of us here in our house. And what it did was, is it stopped us from using our plumbing in our house for a couple days, which as you would imagine, could get really frustrating really fast. And I'll bring this to a close so we can draw the parallels here to the world of audio. During that entire situation, I did not once lose my shit. I did not, well, actually I did, but in his front yard, but that's a different story. No, I didn't lose my cool is what I'm trying to say. And in spite of the frustration of it, I just kept hyper-focused on all of us putting our heads together to solve the problem because without going into great detail, it became a little complex, but in the end, within a 2 day period we had a solution and there was the potential there for a lot of anger and a lot of you know battle between neighbor neighbor versus neighbor but i know that this guy is good at heart and i know that he's going to be a long term neighbor and i want to keep the peace so i kept my head focused on just getting the job done and of course he paid for it because it was it was his fault but he did the right thing and The parallel here to the world of audio is that no matter what the situation, always look at the bigger picture. Whether you're working on movies or music or whatever, in the creative world, we can get into situations where people lose their shit with each other and they yell at each other. So if you don't add to the craziness by raising your voice, which I know is really hard. I have a really hard time when other people raise their voice at me with me, not just barking back. But by staying cool and keeping your eye on the money in terms of what the objective is, that pays dividends in the end because people respect those who keep their cool. People don't respect those who lose their shit on people and they talk about them because when you yell at somebody, you really make them feel bad and people remember that shit like you wouldn't believe. I think you all know that. So keeping cool and keeping focused on the task and achieving what we want to achieve in the creative world is so important. And it's just obviously as important in the world of, you know, dealing with your neighbor and plumbing. So it's common sense to me and I'm sure it is to you, but I just had to reiterate it here to remind everybody that no matter how heated it gets, if you sit back, take a deep breath and resist the temptation to yell back and just figure out the solution to what it is you're trying to do and take the emotion out of it, which once again, very difficult to do for some people. I know it is for me sometimes, but if you stay focused on that, you can accomplish great things. No matter the difficulty, you can accomplish great things. So that's it. In the end, we are back up and running and we have plumbing and I can, you know, I can use my bathroom and shower now and that's a great thing. Uh, I have a great neighbor who made a mistake but did the right thing and everybody kept their cool in the whole process, which. Really worked out great. So keep your cool and don't lose your shit. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of Pro Audio. You m- might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. A number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the US, and I just love that whole thing. So, if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out, hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to WorkingClassAudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me, and we can sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Jay Clark here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. Great to meet you. As we were discussing before we started recording, I've actually met you once briefly, stopped by your room probably for about less than three minutes, walked around was like, oh my gosh, lots of speakers. Wow, this, this is quite the utmost room. We'll, of course, discuss that, but i like to get into the beginning parts of your life and find out where you grew up.
0: Well, I was born in Michigan City, Indiana. I lived there until I was about eight years old. And then from there, I went to Minneapolis oh. and stayed there until after high school. So that's where I kind of, that's what I consider my you know, home for mm-hmm. the most part because I have the most memories there. So yeah, in Minneapolis for about, I think I left when I was, uh, so I got there around eight. I left when I was 20, 21. I went to Seattle for another 10 years and then kept moving. you have any brothers or sisters? I have two half-sisters. Okay. Growing
1: up, did music or technology attract you early on, say, from eight years old on?
0: Yeah, I was not so much technology, which when I think about my life now, it seems surprising. But music, for sure. I was a skateboarder. I was obsessed with, strangely enough, hair metal at the time when I was growing up. Like, as a really young kid, like, I remember staying up late, I think it was, like, one Saturday Saturday, and Guns N' Roses was playing on a, I think it was a Headbangers Ball or something. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, like, oh, my God, that's so cool. What is that all about? And then that's kind of how I got into rock music, at least. But before that, like, I played in band and I played the clarinet. And it's strange because no one in my family was really musical. I don't know where it came from, I guess. For me, music is kind of an emotional connection thing, so I think I was just drawn to it, like, naturally. I just mm-hmm. feel something when I hear sound all the time. Yeah, so I don't know where it came from, to be honest, It's which is strange, but it grabbed a hold of me very strongly.
1: Mm. And clarinet, was that something that you just picked randomly, or did you truly have a passion
0: to play reading? <laughs> I <laughs> So... There are two things. I honestly, the, the first thing was I had a crush on a girl. Yeah. And I, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I bet you're not going to guess the second one, though. But yeah, so I had a crush on a girl. She was in band. So I was like, oh, I want to hang out with this girl. And at the time, when I was really young, <laughs> I was, uh my mom really liked Kenny G. And for some reason, I was like, "Oh, he plays the clarinet. That seems like a good idea." Even though I think it's a bass clarinet that he plays, but I didn't know the difference at the time. So I picked the clarinet because of Kenny G. I shouldn't even be telling the story to the world, but I am. <laughs> See, I thought Kenny G played like the the sax. One of the variations he does play sax- the sax, but he also—I'm pretty sure—he also plays the bass clarinet. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Well, B- Benny Goodman played the clarinet. I mean. Well, I wish that was the reason more so than, (laughs) you know, but to be honest, it was, uh, it was Kenny G. And then I spent a lot of time like playing along the Kenny G records on the stoop of my house, which is, does not sound very punk rock or, uh, cool, but it is what happened. That's pretty
1: funny. That's great. How did band progress for you? Did you stick with it?
0: Yeah, I was, I, I did pretty well. I ended up at first chair at some point. I think in all honesty like i as i got older and got more into like skateboarding and punk rock i thought that it was too structured and too honestly just too uncool to do and i kind of grew out of it and it kind of clicked cuz i remember there was one recital where i i wasn't practicing or, or at all and i uh did the whole thing pretending to play and i was like i should probably stop doing this cuz i wasn't even participating So I just kind of grew out of it because I kind of grew into just a whole different world uh, and style of music and want. Like, I didn't want to play that instrument anymore. I was Mm -hmm. more interested in guitar. So I just kind of quickly grew out of it. Because that was probably another, by the time I was like 12 or something.
1: Wow. And and punk rock wise, who were you listening to?
0: At that time, it was probably, it was like a lot of misfits, subhumans, bad brains for sure, minor threat, kind of like yeah more american punk and then i got into well subhumans crass crust stuff stuff like that yeah we got obsessed with some british stuff later on but i think one of the first was uh minor threat got me pretty good and then uh i went down a whole dc thing for a long time of course then you have to go to Rights of spring and yep absolutely
1: yeah oh i oh i know takes you down the whole path yeah Did you end up playing in punk rock bands or in rock bands?
0: Well, I had let's see a couple punk rock bands. I guess when I was in high school, it's interesting because I don't know if we would they would be considered punk rock bands really at that time in Minneapolis. Bands like Babes in Toyland and um, Mm. all the AmRep stuff was really really big, and that was had like a you know it was a huge inspiration for me. So that stuff is based in some punk rock, but it's more. I wouldn't say grungy, noise, experimental. You know, we kind of ended up doing stuff like that. And uh, so I was in a band with a couple girls when I was in high school. We basically kind of sounded like a ripoff version of Babes in Toyland. And then um, I was in another band at the same time, actually. We were called the Frank Booth Band, and we were kind of like Nation of Ulysses-ish. That was kind of the whole thing for that. So that, you know, there's that DC stuff again.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Tim from Nation of Ulysses, I think, still lives up here in Northern California. That's cool. When did recording come onto your radar as something
0: to do? So later on in life, when I was in Seattle, I was in a band called Pretty Girls Make Graves. And when we started going to bigger studios, I did a lot of recording before that. Did a lot of ADAT recording and uh, recorded with Dave Gardner, who you've had on here before. Um, he's recorded a lot of my bands, and I was always interested and enjoyed being in the studio. But I think it was more, I was interested in just capturing the energy of live performance and not the technical aspect of things, and more because it's hard to capture that. And so that was the only thing I cared about. Really was like when I. Playing something or recording it, it always sounded uh, a little more lifeless if something was close mic or something. I didn't understand that at the time. I just knew it felt different and I mm. didn't like it. So it wasn't until later when I think Pretty Girls, we were working on our second full length, maybe third, but we were doing a lot of writing individually. And I needed a way to to write stuff because we weren't doing like the normal, all of us sitting in a room and just hashing it out. And so I, um, I bought like a Pro Tools rig. This was like 2002 or three or something, and I bought the first mbox, the little blue guy. Mm-hmm. I had that, and then I ended up getting a 001 later, and I just did it just so I could write ideas at home. That's what it started as, and then I started getting curious about sounds, thinking about it more, and then at some point I interned at a studio in Seattle just because I wanted a little more experience. What
1: studio was that?
0: It was, oh God, what's the label? Do you know that band
1: MXPX? Yeah, that sounds familiar, but I wouldn't, is is the studio tied to a label?
0: Yeah, it's tied to a label. It was like a Christian punk label in Seattle. And I was friends with a couple of guys that work there. And so I played on some stuff. I did like some ghost drumming and stuff for them. And, and they had a SSL in there and And then at night I would just go in and I actually recorded secretly a couple records that I never (laughs) released. But at night I would just go in there and just record stuff. And that's kind of where I got like my full bug for it, where I was like, I really like, I like this. I like the production. I like recording and, you know, more than just writing songs kind of happened in this window of just like, I need to get my ideas recorded down somewhere. And it kind of blossomed into more. The technical side of it.
1: Mm. Did, did anybody in your life, were, were they there to influence you or to egg you on into the world of recording and mentor you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I had a friend uh, in Seattle. He runs, I don't know if you've spent much time in Seattle, but he owns a couple of clubs and restaurants and stuff there. His name's Jason Lajeunesse, and he and I would hang out a lot. We were kind of partying a lot back then, but he was probably the first person I actually recorded Aside from, have you heard of the band, The Cave Singers? Yes. So the singer from the band, Cave Singers, he was actually in a band with Jason. And those two guys, I did a lot of like late night recordings in my apartment in Seattle. And I recorded probably an EP for him. And mm-hmm. he kind of really egged me on and pushed me into like taking it a little more seriously and kind of encouraged it. And uh, actually, it's funny because I just talked to him recently and he wants me to go back and remix all the stuff that we did. Which I'll probably do. Would be really cool, but yeah, he was. Uh, he he just pushed me to like take it a little more seriously, and and I kind of did after that. You know, after there was a period where my band broke up and I moved to Portland, and then I went to school for engineering and uh, music theory and stuff hmm. at uh, Portland State University. Or maybe it was a community college. Can't remember. But I also went to, um, before that, I was taking Berkeley classes online while I was still touring Hmm. for recording stuff and production stuff.
1: In your mind, were you thinking that you were going to head more in the direction of recording and production and slowly stop touring?
0: No. And to be honest with you, what I was thinking was, if I can do all this stuff, then I can just record all these ideas I had because I had a lot of musical ideas in my head. And like I said, I recorded all these songs and all these records at the time. And so what I was thinking was, I guess I was thinking I want to be a jack of all trades. I just want to be able to, like, if I have an idea or I have something that I want to do, I want to be able to do it instantly and not be dependent on the old uh, idea of putting a band together. Because I was having a hard time finding people to play with. So I got a practice base, set up all this stuff when I was in Portland and just would go in and record drums and then go home and maybe track bass and keys and stuff and then go back and do guitars and then bounce between those two spots to just track a bunch of stuff but i really just wanted to record myself
1: and at that period of time were were you making a living was band income or writing income something to speak of or or did you have other jobs
0: so there was a long period of time where it was mostly band income that's when i was taking the berkeley classes online a lot of that was during tours. That's how I paid for it all. Actually, it was just from tour income. And then I didn't really stop touring until I moved to Los Angeles, and that was mostly because I got married. But yeah, I didn't. I hadn't worked in a long time, so that's the thing that made me uh, focus on it a little bit more as far as a career was. My bands were breaking up, or had broken up, and I was like, "Well, what am I going to do now?" I was having a hard time finding people to play with. And then I was like, oh, well, recording's fun. (laughs) I do like that. So that's when I started considering it a little bit more. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And there are other ways that it came in handy down the line, too. But that was kind of an idea. I did produce a record for a band, Moros Eros. They were on uh, Victory. And I did a record with them. That was like the first band that I went into a studio with and tracked and produced and that was fun. That was at uh, Jason McGurr's, the drummer for Death Cab for Cutie, his studio in Seattle, in a little place for a little while. That, I guess, would say fully cemented it. I was like, oh, I like working with people because you find people and I can help them get their ideas out, being that I was in a band and I had those same issues of recording and feeling like the recordings didn't represent my musical ideas or, you know, and it's like how to get that energy out on a recording that was hard for people to get
1: yeah and you felt like you you had a perspective and an approach that could get them there and and get the things down on on tape in air quotes that you heard
0: yeah yeah definitely i'm kind of a notorious hard ass about stuff and a somewhat of a perfectionist so i'm an annoyance when it comes to it and i can Push people, I think, in a, a way to kind of get the best out of them, not to be a dick or anything, but to get the best out of something. I, I think back to when I was younger, and I, and I remember this very clearly. The first time I was in high school, I think, when Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit, when that video came out. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching it, and I remember listening to it, and I was a drummer. And at that time, I had never, ever in my life considered smashing a cymbal and i don't know why i always just rode the ride and at that point like there's like a transitional period i feel like with recording or just critical listening where you start to hear the small things that make a big difference in a record but when you're a consumer you don't really notice it mm-hmm. it may be the thing that attracts you to it but you don't know why and that was one of those moments where i was like oh wow that energy that like smashing on a cymbal and like that really is driving this song and it was just little things like that that started to poke out at you and it's like in a way it takes away the innocence of recording because you're just kind of always being clinical yeah but it is definitely those those small little things that um make all the difference so i just you know you start hearing all that stuff and it's like it becomes really important and and then you know how to communicate with people it's like when you talk about energy it's something that's like something as simple as that like if you're playing drums and you're just doing the ride it's like well Maybe dig into that a little bit more, and you can elevate that part.
1: Yeah. Now, I missed something there, because at some point earlier in our conversation, you were talking about playing guitar. Mm. So in most of your bands, when did you make that transition to
0: drums? I kind of always did both. When I was younger, after the clarinet incident, um, (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I started playing guitar, and I played guitar for a few years. And I was doing okay. I took, I took lessons briefly. And I remember once I was practicing and I was sitting on my couch and playing, playing, playing. And kind of being frustrated. And I broke a string. And the string poked me in the eye. Oh. And I was like, I, I'm done with this thing. <laughs> and I just stopped for a while. <laughs> then I started playing drums. And it turned out that I was actually pretty good at drums. So I did that for a while, for a long while but you never wow. got hit in the eye with a stick. No, I most definitely did. Actually, <laughs> but I wasn't I drums were one of those things that I wasn't I never got really frustrated with. I think because when I was younger I, I listened to so much metal and stuff and you know all these people were shredders and I was like I couldn't make heads or tails of it when I was young at mm-hmm. first. But drums for some reason I don't know, the the caveman in me or something made it just really easy. I'm like, I can pound on this, and it feels really good in my soul. And I just, it made sense to me. So I I just excelled very quickly at playing drums versus guitar. So I did that for, I mean, I never stopped, but I did that for a while. And then in Minneapolis, there was a band that I was in called Kill Sadie. And they had another guitar player, and I was kind of friends with some of them. And um, they ended up asking me to play guitar with them. And I was like, oh, sure, I can do it. I played guitar and so I just got back into playing guitar. And I stuck with that for a long time and I, I was always playing drums and guitar at the same time pretty much my entire life in different bands. So I never really stopped. Take me through
1: the progression of how we arrived today in a room full of speakers <laughs> in terms of once you got into recording and the different stops in your life, what were the what were the highlights there?
0: So I'll, I'm going to give you, I'll just give you a quick rundown of like 30 years of my life or something. <laughs> <laughs> so started playing in bands in Minneapolis, started touring right out of high school, playing a lot of punk shows, hardcore shows. I was in a band called Kill Sadie. At some point around 98, we collectively decided to move somewhere on tour. And while we were on tour, we were trying to decide you know, what place we are going to. So every city we played in, we considered an option. We ended up picking Seattle. And so we came back and we brought like all of our girlfriends and our roadie. So about 14 of us got into a truck, drove all of our shit across the country, moved into a house together. And then we were a very committed band and we, we, we spent a lot of time just like, all we did was rehearse and tour so we did that for a long time in seattle and we put out a couple records on Dim Mock records which is steve aoki's old label or current label actually which is now an electronic label which is very strange and while we were in that band i became friends with derek from Sea devils and a couple other guys nick and nathan they were already playing together i started playing with them and that's how we formed pretty girls make graves and then i also Started playing with some of the guys that ended up in Minus the Bear, and we were in a band called Sharks Keep Moving. So I did that. Pretty Girls was from like 2001 to 2007 or 2000 to 2007 or something like that. And at the end of that band, I decided I was going to move to L.A. And on the way down, I was really good friends with Cody Votolato from the Blood Brothers at the time. They had just broken up as well, and we stopped in Portland. And stayed with johnny the singer from the blood brothers we formed a band called jaguar love we, we uh hit a back house and we just set up in there and uh wrote a record in uh, maybe like a month and a half or something and i demoed the whole thing and sent it to matador and we got signed and then I ended up turning around going back to seattle <laughs> even though i was trying to leave and we went and recorded a record and then just started touring again and then i left that band in 2009 or something. And uh, I stayed in Portland for a while. I worked on some solo stuff. That's when I went back to school. That's when you were doing the uh, the school thing, and and you were also doing the Berkeley online classes. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So I went back, studied like jazz guitar and engineering, and then Cody actually he was in Portland as well still, and he did a record with Ross Robinson and. Uh, a couple other guys for a guy named Hyrule the Hero, it was like a weird record, but it was really cool. It was like a hip-hop, hip-hop meets Fugazi kind hmm. of thing, and it was with Paul from At The Drive-In, and it was really cool. And um, I can't remember exactly how it happened. I, I was hanging out with Paul. He owned a place called The Beauty Bar. They asked me to play guitar with him just as a touring musician, and so I did that for a little while, for maybe yeah. a year and a half, two years and most of the guys ended up moving all to L.A., and I was, like, finally ready to move as well. So I moved down to L.A. in 2011.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Did a couple final tours with that group, and um, when I got down here, a friend of mine from a band called Juno, Arlie, was... He worked for a company called Incase.
1: Oh, yeah, they make phone cases.
0: Yeah, they made phone cases, backpacks, a bunch of bunch of stuff yeah he had a warehouse space in downtown and he would bring bands in and then they would build a set make three music videos and then do a live recording and then release it i think it was like once a month so i was like oh that sounds like fun i'll do that you know i'd come down and record the songs with him but in doing that he would bring in different directors for each one and i ended up meeting a lot of directors and then They would ask for, you know, random things like, hey, do you think you could write a song for this? Or do you think you could mix this thing? And so I ended up then doing a lot of post-production work, which then led me to sound designing and working on feature films, which I still don't know how that happened.
1: (laughs) That's what happens when you move to LA.
0: Yeah, I mean, basically, LA is a funny place. You can get a job doing just about anything if you put yourself in the right position. But yeah, so... I started doing a lot of stuff in surround because of movies. So I had a 5 1 set up for a, a long time. And, and then uh, it was right around the start of the pandemic. Dave Gardner and I, I was going to Vintage King all the time to pick up gear, and Infrasonic was above there mm-hmm. for a, a long time. That's in Echo Park? Yeah. Yep. So we just started hanging out again randomly, and we knew each other from Minneapolis. And he and I started talking about building a post production Atmos room and also a Sony 360, which is another, I guess, everyone calls it the VHS and beta. I'm sure you know about it since you have an Atmos room. But we started talking about that because, you know, he said he had a lot of people that he was talking to that they were having a hard time finding an affordable, smaller home theater mixing room to like reference stuff in or mix stuff in. And we ended up putting a room together in Toluca Lake during the pandemic. We found a place that was pretty cool, but we kind of ran into some problems with the landlords, but we we, we put that room together. And it ended up being a, an Atmos Sony 360 room, so it was 11.16, but then it had another four speakers for the Sony 360. So whatever it is, we had like 24 speakers in there. But we actually never ended up doing any post stuff. We only <laughs> started doing Atmos stuff because that was right before the whole Apple spatial announcement thing. So we were kind of in place randomly before everything happened. Since we worked with Dolby and PMC to put that room together, like we kind of had a head start on everything. So that's how I ended up in this room with all these speakers, essentially was just like chance conversation with Dave and some other people at Dolby and with PMC. And then Dave, you know, he was having some family stuff. So we kind of had to go our separate ways a little bit. We still work together because we do stuff through Infersonic, but I took all the stuff, and now I'm stuck in a room full of at this at this point, like uh, almost 30 speakers because I have an extra set of LCRs in here, which are I'm trying to sell if anybody wants to buy them. <laughs>
1: They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app. Check it out. So your current place is located in what's the Lemon Tree facility, which is located, where's what's that area? Highland Park. Highland Park. Okay. And
0: you call your place Shinebox Studios, right? Yeah, Shinebox was like, that's what I am and was uh, when I was doing a lot of post stuff. And I had to come up with a name and I thought, hey, I can clean up your shoes for you. You send me your junk and I'll (laughs) I'll, I'll shine it up. Shine your shoes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, so where is your head at today in terms of like, I mean, as a player, you've toured a ton, drummer, guitar player. So you have this musical background, but you kind of have found yourself really deeper into this audio thing in a number of ways because you've tapped into the post-production thing, but you're also doing the music thing. So where does your passion lie currently? Like, where's your head at? Do you miss touring? Do you, do you really love doing what you're doing as a mix engineer?
0: Yeah. I, you know, I toured for what, 12 plus years spending eight to six months out of every year, never home. In 2012, I got married, and uh, I was still touring right before that, and you know, she said something to me. She said, I didn't get married to be alone, and I was like, okay, I understand, and I have to respect that. What I didn't know is that I was kind of burnt out on that life, because it takes a toll on you, and most of the touring I did was being in a, essentially, a broke band. Mm -hmm. Touring in vans, sleeping on floors, Eaten garbage. <laughs> and so I, I don't miss touring. I can't say that I miss touring. I miss the fun of playing live shows. but I don't miss all the traveling at all. And I really enjoy now having some bit of consistency and normality in life. It took me a while to actually learn to appreciate it because I didn't know how to just get up and go do something every day. If I wasn't at a new place, I needed that sort of randomness. Mm. It made sense to me. So now, like, I really enjoy mixing. I still do write music almost every day. I write stuff for commercials and shit. So every box that I need checked gets checked. Whether it's, like, if I'm mixing something for someone else and I'm just helping someone realize their vision, that's great. I love doing it. There's nothing better than, you know, someone feeling frustrated or just wanting their stuff to sound a certain way and you can do it and, like, all they do is smile. That's great. And then at the same time, I still get to write tons and tons of stuff for whatever I need to. And it may actually even be more fun writing for commercials. I know some people wouldn't say that, but I don't have any real emotional, like artistic ties to it in the sense that I won't let myself finish it because it's my baby and I need it to be a certain way and I can't separate my feelings about it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When I have to I have a deadline and I have, talk to someone and i have an idea of what they're looking for i just find that path and i shoot down it and then it's the same kind of thing it's like what do you think about this and they're like this sucks or this is great and either way like all i'm trying to do is get to the this is great part and that's totally fulfilling for me
1: i was going to say i hope you are writing because there's the listeners can't see it but there's a ton of keyboards around you yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I, and I, mean, I hope they're getting used
0: they do get used. Yeah. They need to get used more, but they do get used. Well, those, and to be honest, that stuff, you know, that stuff is for me. If I have to write stuff fast, then I stay in the box. But that stuff is all for when I just want to have fun, mm-hmm. essentially, you know, or or if I have the time. Well, Let's talk about Atmos. First of all,
1: my listeners know that I've gone down the, the Atmos path, so they hear it all the time. And I've been on other podcasts talking about it. But Sony 360 is not something that many people are hearing about and it seems that i mean honestly i only hear about it from a handful of people mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on the differences and or uh, the market potential for sony 360
0: well the difference is i would say sony 360 to me is the binaural aspect of it when done right which is is harder than the atmos version is a more realistic version of an immersive experience. It mm-hmm. really, if you do it right and you close your eyes and you can really feel the space, it's, it's pretty crazy. But it is hard to get to know the software and it can be really frustrating for a lot of people. And
1: doesn't Sony, that's a third-party company that's got that software, is it not?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, Sony, I believe, wrote the original software. Okay. But they license it to a third-party company. Gotcha. Because when I started, I was using their software before it was licensed. But to be honest with you, the Sony stuff is kind of more accessible to the masses because if you get the software, the way that you use it, it's simpler. And it may not seem that way, but it's simpler than Atmos. Atmos, in the beginning, can feel really daunting and, and complicated. It's not that bad. I'm sure you know. Like It probably felt that way. But it's not horrible. But the Sony stuff is... To me, it seems a little more user-friendly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I would say the only problem with the Sony stuff is that right now, from what I understand, you if you want to release it, you have to go through a, a Sony distributor, which is a, a third step that I don't think most people would do.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I think, like, The Orchard, is that a Sony distributor?
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's the tricky part with the Sony stuff. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because Amos is room base but what is it like a, a rectangle or whatever and the sony stuff is a, a sphere and they really play to those shapes and like with the sony stuff you really get that throw you lift something up and it's automatically bouncing off the rear is what it feels like so it's it spreads around you a lot easier the only problem that i have with it is that with all binaural stuff a little bit when you think about the the science behind it you kind of naturally get like a, a a narrowed stereo field because the whole point of it is that you're in a space and sound is reflecting off of everything so it doesn't feel as wide as you know a regular stereo mix and there aren't really tools to kind of trick you yet like we use in stereo stuff to make things wider but if you really listen to stuff it always feels a little bit more narrow you know, hmm. or if you just take your own mix and put it in there in the headphones in the binaural. Not right. in the room. But that's the nature of binaural because that's the whole point of it. It's to to pretend like you're out in a space and it's reflecting off things.
1: Right. Of the work that you get, Atmos versus 360, what could you give me maybe a rough percentage of how much versus
0: the other you're getting? So I, I get a lot of 360 stuff. But in the beginning it was it was probably about 50-50. But now as more people have come online, you know, I think it's some mixers want to do their own, which I understand, and some larger mixers want to keep the money, all that stuff. So it's, it's slimmed down a bit. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, I don't mind that because my biggest gripe with Atmos right now is that for a lot of people, it's a money grab. And I think they're doing the, the bare minimum when it comes to the mixes mm-hmm. to just turn shit around. And so now, when I talk to people about doing Atmos stuff, I'm like, you know, if you just want it to sound like the stereo coming through the left and right with a little bit of reverb sprinkled around, I don't want to do it because it's not, it's not, it's fun. not interesting, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's such a waste of potential that it's not exciting for me at all. As far as
1: budgets for mixes, have you seen a
0: race to the bottom? <laughs> sort of. I think, like I said, because of, the stuff that I'm wanting to do, not really for me. But yeah, I think that there's tons of people that are like, I can do it on headphones and I'll do it for 200 bucks. I I remember we, I think we were out at uh, AES and we were talking to someone and he was like, you know, I can do literally, this guy said he could do like 50 mixes in a day. Oh, God. I hate and, those um, people. Like, I guess you could. I don't think that any of them would be good, which means he's just taking like stereo files, up mixing them putting them in an ADM and calling it a day. And that that stuff is going to show its head in a, 10 years down the road.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When consumer systems get better and car systems, you know, then all of a sudden you're going to be like, what are all these crappy mixes? And it's really going to show its head to people and and I and I tell people that all the time. I'm like, spend the money now and you you won't regret it.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting if you go back to the 80s and the the early 90s where there were budgets to make records and people invested largely in those productions. A lot of those records from the 80s, man, say what you will, but a lot of them stand the test of time, culturally, sonically, production-wise. And man, I tell you, I've heard some really bad Atmos mixes out there that just make me go, how does this happen? And at the end of the day, it's... People being short-sighted financially.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it kind of blows my mind. And I feel like most artists don't have a hand in it. It's like A&Rs or something. Because some of the stuff, I know that if if it were my music, I wouldn't approve it. Right. At all. I was um, out at Michael Romanowski's place. And he pointed out a record that I can't even believe exists in Atmos the way that it is. When you play it in a room, and you should try this if you have your Apple Music set up to do it. Yeah, I do. All the vocals sit in the back half of the room. Hmm. And it sounds like whoever was mixing it did it on headphones or something. It Just like they felt better in the headphones. Because there's a little bit in the front, but everything is just sitting from the, the sides all the way back. And the loudest in the rears, and it's craziness. And it doesn't sound good, and it's not like a creative thing. It's just a mistake. And there should be some sort of checks and balances to make sure that sort of stuff isn't happening. And, and that's a huge artist. Like I, I couldn't even believe it when you hear it. It's like, how how is that possible?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little nuts that some people think they can get away with 100% doing it in headphones.
0: It's 100% nuts, yeah. The, I think the difference that people don't understand or refuse to accept is that the headphone version of Atmos is not Atmos. It's a binaural mix. Atmos is what's happening in the room that you're in. The binaural mix is going to be different always from the room mix. Mm -hmm. And it's intended to be that way because you're trying to recreate something. And when you archive it and when you play it back in 10, 20 years, the only thing that's going to stand the test of time from an engineering standpoint is the mix that you did in the room. 10, 20 years from now, binaural mixes will be totally different. They may be better, they may be worse. Who knows? But they will be different, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, once again, short-sightedness. Planning yeah. for thinking that, oh, this is not going to go anywhere, or it's only popular on headphones, so I'm only going to mix to that audience. Right. That's a mistake.
0: And I'll, I mean, think about it from the start of Apple doing spatial stuff to now. It's like every computer they released plays Atmos out of the computer, not just the headsets. There's six speakers. It does a version of it, which is what Atmos was intended to be. It's infinitely compatible in whatever direction. Scalable, yeah. Yeah, scalable. And the same with their monitors, the same thing. Or you can just play them on the phone, and there is a sonic difference that represents the mix that you did in your room. And it's it's surprising. I I, I was shocked by it when I heard it for the first time. But that's only going to happen more and more. There's more cars putting stuff in. There's going to be, you know, I mean, there's tons of TVs that already do Atmos because of film and stuff. And like even the new HomePod. The HomePod, right. right. They're coming back, yeah. So there's going to be tons of that stuff and that immersive audio and immersive technology is obviously the future and it makes sense. So I just don't know why people are so dead set on either finding it or doing their best to make it shitty right now, you know? <laughs> it seems that's, that's what it feels like.
1: Yeah, well, there is, I don't remember the artist and I and honestly, I just don't want to even name him because yeah, for whatever reason... There was an artist that released something, it was on Apple Music, and the Center Channel you hit play, and from song number one to the end of the record, Sempty Time Code, blasting out of the Center Channel. Oh yeah, I heard that as well. And I was just like, how the fuck does that happen? Who does not check their shit?
0: Yeah, I, you know, and we were talking about this the other day with Pete Lyman and Maurice from PMC. And that's another reason that people should do mastering on their Atmos stuff because you need someone else to QC stuff sometimes. If there's there's no QC process before things get to, you know, the streaming services, they'll just pull up whatever you give them, but that is a step that is kind of missing. Like if you don't check things, you end up with stuff like that. Yeah, you
1: know? but I mean even in that, I mean, let's say the mix engineer Just dump the audio into the Dolby Audio Assembler, which audience—that's a a piece of software that you can you can get Mm -hmm. hold of. So, like, even if you took your ADM files and put them in the album assembler and ran it through and just listened, then you'd hear that. So, I think the mix engineer just did not listen to the mixes and just bounced them out without checking.
0: Well, that is pure chaos. (laughs) it's (laughs) It's either that or you know maybe some people there there are mixes that i've listened to where to me it sounds like people are making a lot of makeshift at most things where you you can hear that either and i swear they have to be doing something like this like you'll hear the delay on the music as opposed to the speaker for timing for maybe phase correction mm-hmm. and it sounds there's just insanity so there was i feel like there's a period where people were just making up whatever they could to try and get in on it Mm -hmm. and maybe that person was just like oh well I'll put most of it in the left and right or something and like just listen to it that way not even use a center channel because I don't want to put anything in it but not knowing that something's coming out of it which is the same thing as not QCing it at the end and listening to it but it's like to me it's like I know it's expensive to put together rooms like this it doesn't have to be necessarily but there should be reference level rooms that things get checked in. Yeah. As opposed to just, I don't want to say that people shouldn't be able to do things on their own, but it is a somewhat complicated technology. And if you're not fully versed, you can have huge mistakes like that, which just hurt you or hurt an artist.
1: Did Dolby tune your room there? They did. Okay. Yeah. And some people don't like I'm not one of these people because Dolby be Tune My Room. But some people don't like that kind of interference. It's, you know, it's almost akin to government interference. Like some other <laughs> tech companies gonna come in and work on my thing and, and approve me. And yeah, some people have kind of a, a resistance to that. And I get it to some degree, but when you're playing with as, as we've said, you know, something that is complicated like this,
0: you want to get it right. Yeah, it's not the sort of thing that you can just kind of wing. You will have poor results if you wing it. And as far as that, the tuning, I think, is a fully misunderstood thing. The tuning is there for translation, and that's why there's a reference level chosen. When you tune any room... In my opinion, you should have a reference level that you tune at and you listen at. It doesn't mean that um, when you're listening at the reference level, you have to be melting your face off, but you need to excite the room in the the right way for the translation. And my room's tuned at 85 dB, which if if Atmos went to your finishing records at minus 9 or minus 8 or whatever like stereo masters are, yes, my ears would be bleeding and I would be screaming and begging for forgiveness, but it's not. And it doesn't feel that way. And if you mix correctly into it, you end up with a really dynamic mix and it doesn't have to be harsh or overly loud. Yeah. But you need to listen at the reference level that your room is tuned at. And that's all it's for. It's translation.
1: Let me ask you this, and still with regards to Amos. Well, first of all, are you doing catalog work or are you doing like frontline, like newer artist type stuff?
0: At this point, it's mostly newer stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Catalog work is... I have limited experience with it, we'll just say that, and I have many friends who have a lot of experience with it, and it's very involved, and it takes a long time, and yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the economics of it. It's it's a little bit of a head-scratcher.
0: Yeah, I thought there would be more of it, but it seems like, well, I mean, I think the economics of it are what's kind of dictating how that's working more yeah. than anything at this
1: point. Do you feel like you're making a, a fairly good living between Atmos and Sony 360?
0: Yeah, so I like Variety in my life, and it's just a portion of my income. So for the amount that I do, absolutely. But I still do so much other stuff that I just stay busy with whatever comes in. Yeah. So I will say this. The one thing that Atmos mixing has done is it's brought me back to more stereo mixing because I was really kind of sucked into the post-world. Mm-hmm. But now, because I'm working with so many people, I I end up having more conversations about doing more mixing. And I'm having even more fun going back and doing a lot more of that stuff. And then even trying to convince people to then do Atmos. And I I like to work with people. Like I said, obviously, I come from a punk rock background. and So I, I, I like to encourage smaller bands and like what I would call cooler bands to try and do it because I think that... And a lot of underground genres is where something like this will really shine, where people will do interesting things and push the envelope as opposed to just, like, I don't mind doing the pop stuff and everything, but, you know, it has to fit in a mold.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, we've talked about punk rock a lot on this chat, and it's funny that you would find yourself in the company of InfraSonic, which is filled with a lot of punk rock fans, Pete Lyman, of course. Yeah. So tell me about your role there as being a member of InfraSonic.
0: So basically, with them, I kind of am the immersive guru kind of guy. That's, mm-hmm. that's my contribution. And I do some mixing stuff now for them as well. But mostly, you know, we when all the Apple stuff happened, obviously my room was already up and running. And Reed, Shippen, and Pete started to get a lot of inquiries about work. So they ended up coming out to L.A. and renting out my room to work on some stuff. So we just ended up becoming like fast friends. Like Pete and I actually have a lot of mutual friends, and he played in a band with some of my old bandmates. And we have a lot more in common than we actually knew. And I had never met Reed, but he and I became really fast friends. And I kind of helped him with a couple of records that he was working on, and then we kind of collaborated on. We split a couple records where he did half of it in Atmos, and I did the other half and worked together. And then we started talking about working together a lot more at that point. And Kind of came together with what we were going to originally call infrasonic immersive, but we're just, you know, infrasonic will just be, it's like an all encompassing brand. And we're just like a team of cool dudes and (laughs) ladies, cool dudes and ladies doing stuff.
1: Yeah. How do you feel about your work-life balance
0: doing all this? Hmm. Now that. (laughs) Or should we ask your wife? Yeah. You should ask my wife. It's probably, uh, it's not good. I had a doctor's appointment today, and the doctor asked me about my sleeping habits. And I said, I sleep about five hours a day, and if I try to sleep more, my body won't let me. So, I mean, I would say six days a week, I am working like 16 hours a day. So it's probably not good, and I have to figure out a way to balance it. But I do always find time to, I work out every day. I try to eat right every day and, and balance that. Mostly sedentary life when you're sitting in a chair, staring at a screen. Yeah. But just like mental side of it for me, like every morning I have a routine and part of that routine is a minimum of an hour of exercise before I come to the studio. Mm-hmm. So That's doing cool. that keeps me balanced for the most part.
1: Super important. Super important. Yeah, 100%. How do you feel you're handling the financial end of it? You know, not to get into any specific numbers, but I mean, just... Generically, how do you feel like you're dealing with
0: it? Are you are you a saver, are you a spender? Are you- I am a learning saver. Uh, you know, I was always the kind of guy who I like the shiny new thing in technology. Mm-hmm. But I've kind of I feel like a lot of technology, especially computers, for example, I've hit a wall where like I don't need like you know they just released the M2 Max, and last year they just released the M1s, and there's no way that I need more processing power than even the last ones had. So, you know, I'm learning right now to kind of just use what I have and get the most out of it, which I think is really important, even with like all the keyboards and stuff that are in my room. Like, I don't want any more stuff. I would rather master a few things and maybe get rid of some stuff at this point. So I, I stopped spending a lot of money on gear, and I'm trying to save and invest more. My wife and I, we got a financial advisor, and that's weird. (laughs) <laughs> but it's cool. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm getting older. So I got to start thinking about retirement and all that stuff and start planning for those things. And it's, that's also very important. It's something you don't think about when you're playing music or in a studio and, and then suddenly you're 65 and you're like, what the fuck am I going to do? I know.
1: I know. You know, it's funny. Uh, I mean, I'm in my early fifties and my wife and I just got a financial advisor and we had to go out to a special lunch to cheer ourselves because we were like, wow, we're really adults now. Yeah, we're really <laughs> yeah. doing this. Like, we're committed. We're like doing all these things that I cannot believe we just didn't do it years ago. And for the listener, if you're considering that, I highly encourage you to do it because you hire mix engineers and mastering engineers and tracking engineers and producers to do a very specialized thing and a financial advisor is like the producer of money, the producer of your financial life. And they can really help guide you to make good
0: decisions. 100%. I mean, as little as like skipping going out to dinner once a week and using that money to invest or save, you know, will make all the world a difference. You yeah. wouldn't think it, but it really does. And especially if you start young enough.
1: Well, I tell you what, we are out of time, Jay. I want to alert the audience. Obviously, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to Jay's profile over at Infrasonic, but I'll also put a link to his website, which is JCrowClark.com. Did I get that right, Jay?
0: Yeah, or Shinebox Studios LA. They'll both go to the same place.
1: Okay, I'll put one or the other, or both, even though they lead to the same thing. Yeah. Real pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to talking with you in person at a future date if that is in the cards, I'm sure it oh, will definitely. be. It's a small circle we all run in.
0: It's true. I mean, I totally forgot that I met you once before in my own room. So yeah. <laughs> That's okay.
1: I'm sure you got a, a lot of, a lot of people coming through. So it's true. It's true. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks again, Jay. You take care. You too. Jay Clark here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Hey, remember, to help out the show, what am I going to say? Right, I know. Go to your nearest podcast aggregator. Leave a five-star review. If you can write something up nice, that would be greatly appreciated. Always helps out this show. If you really love this show, do us a solid and give us five stars. That's all for me today. I want to thank the crew, Anne-Marie Plough on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magic voice of Chuck Smith at the top of the show greeting you. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com Check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.